through <clears throat> our statement of faith, which is uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and I've just kind of been reading paragraph by paragraph through it, and we finished chapter 3 a couple of weeks ago, and this morning uh, we begin working through what our statement of faith uh, says about creation. And, uh, and just as a reminder, um, this uh, confession takes into consideration the whole counsel of God's word. And so if you were to look through the confession, you would see uh, not just footnotes as if there's proof, biblical proof text, but a way of interpreting uh, the scripture as well. And so this morning, I'm just going to read quickly paragraph one. It says, in the beginning, it pleased God the Father... Son and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. And so that is paragraph one of chapter four of the confession. But if you have your Bibles with me, you can turn with me to the gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is where we are, and we're going to look particularly, uh, we're, we're still in chapter 3, and we're going to look at this text that I'm going to read this morning. We're going to look at it for the next two weeks because there's a lot of stuff uh, here, and uh, I want to uh, make sure that we're, we're looking at or noticing the things that I, th- I think are particularly important for us to notice, but uh, I'm going to read um, for these next two weeks verses, the second part of verse 19. If you remember last week, we left off, I uh, read verse 19, we left off there. And I'm going to pick back up there with verse 19, the second part. And then I'm going to read through verse 35, and, um, and then I'll pray, and then we will begin to work through uh, this text together. And just by way of reminder, this is um, uh, John Mark who has written this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God that has been kept um, preserved, kept pure throughout all ages. This is the word of the Lord. Start with the second part of verse 19. And they went into a house. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, speaking of Christ, Christ's own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. Speaking of the religious leaders of the day. Verse 31, Then his brothers... And his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. 
But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this opportunity to be able to come and read your word. And God, we ask that as we work through it and try to pay attention to what it means, God, we declare that we are dependent upon your Holy Spirit, Lord, to help us see this with eyes of faith, to apply this in our lives, and Lord, ultimately, to savor who you are for us in Christ Jesus, Lord. So help us, God, over the next few minutes, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So... Just in reading this passage, and if you're, you're familiar with the end of this chapter here, you, you, you know that there's a, there is a, a lot here. Uh, and and I, like I said, I'm going to spend about two weeks, hopefully, on this uh, passage of Scripture. And, and, and next week, I'm going to explore more of what the unforgivable sin is and what it isn't. Kind of. So, so if you, you notice me kind of neglecting that this morning, just know I'm going to uh, come back to it uh, next week to spend more time, and uh, because I think that it, sh- it would be beneficial for us to just kind of slowly work our way through uh, this particular passage of scripture. And if you're following along with us just throughout the the week as you're reading, it would be good for you to just spend a couple of weeks just slowly working through this passage. And and we've talked about the benefits of meditation, just meditating through this passage of scripture and asking the Holy Spirit of God to help you again see things with eyes and faith, but. In our text this morning, Jesus and his, his 12 apostles, they have returned uh, to Peter's house, okay? A, a house that, that has a reputation, as we've seen this far, the centrality, really, of Peter's house. They keep coming back to Peter's house, right? And again, you see how influential Peter was on Mark, who wrote this particular gospel. But there is a return, Jesus and the 12 apostles, to Simon Peter's house. And it's a house that has a reputation for uh, the multitude coming and finding, hearing that Jesus is there and coming and seeking Christ out, right? It has, it has that reputation already. And like I said, we're going to look at these 15-ish verses here this morning because it's important for us to do so in order to set this particular passage of Scripture in its context because I think this is a passage of Scripture that is uh, oftentimes misinterpreted or it's misunderstood. And, and so let me do this. Let me, let me break down for us the passage uh, at, at the 20,000 foot view, if you will, and then we can, we can zoom in on the details a little bit more, but we'll be, uh, we will have the context of the passage in mind as we zoom in on the details, okay? Uh, so, so the first thing, and, and I would encourage you to even have your Bible open kind of looking as I'm explaining this to you, but the first thing that's important for us to do is to harmonize Uh, The second part of verse 19 through 21, which is the first few verses in our text this morning, with the last verses in our text this morning, which are verses 31 to 35. Okay, Christ's own people, we see that Mark used that phrase, own people used in verse 21, is interpreted for us by Mark in verses 31 to 35 as Jesus's mother and his brothers, okay? There, there's this perception 
that Christ's mother and his brothers have, okay, his family has about him, about Jesus at this stage in his ministry, kind of early on in his ministry. And that perception is that Jesus isn't taking care of himself, Okay, that, that's kind of the perception of his family. Mark says that the multitude came to Peter's house, and because of this, quote, they could not so much as eat bread. Okay, we see that in verse 20 here, right? They meaning Christ in the apostles. And we see, we see this repeated in Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 31, when Jesus says this to the disciples. He says, then the apostles gathered to Jesus... And told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going and and get this. And they did not even have time to eat. Okay, so so we can assume that this visit of Mary and this visit that included Jesus's brothers, it's a sort of intervention if you will, right? We, we, and we can assume as well that it was well-meaning, okay? They, they weren't enemies. They weren't Christ's enemies. But they, not Jesus, but his family, they were the ones not seeing things clearly, right? They, they thought that they were seeing things clearly, but they were wrong, in, even though well-intentioned, they were wrong in seeking to intervene in Jesus' ministry, a, a good parallel uh, for us with this could be Peter seeking to intervene when Jesus spoke of his coming death. If you were to look, just quickly flip over to Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. I think we have it on the screen. It says, And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. And then here, and then here's what Peter does. Peter took him aside. He took Jesus aside and began to what? Rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Okay. So, so Peter who loved Jesus was not seeing things clearly at this stage in the game. And in his lack of seeing things clearly, he sought to intervene uh, and, and thus interrupt the messianic work of Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we see here with Mary and with Jesus' brothers at this point. They are trying to interrupt Jesus' messianic work. Okay, Mark, Mark records for us that they believe that Jesus was, quote, out of his mind, right? We see that in verse 21, but, but they didn't believe that in the same way that the religious leaders believed it. They didn't believe, and they, and they certainly didn't propagate that in, in the manner that the religious leaders propagated, right? We, what we see as it relates to Jesus's family in verses, um, and, and if you compare that with verses 22 to 28, which is the religious leader's response, it's, it's, it's coming from a different place, Okay, there, there's, there's wicked intent on behalf of the religious leaders. There is not wicked intent on behalf of Mary and Jesus' brothers. Okay, and so Jesus' family, they, they weren't asserting that Jesus had a demon, right? Or that he was possessed by a demon or possessed by an unclean spirit. But even though they were well-intentioned, they were still 
they were still wrong because they weren't looking at the person in work of Jesus with eyes of faith. And so his family comes and they come to lay hold of him is what our text says. And, and the Greek word for that means seize, literally to seize Jesus. Okay, and they were coming to remove Christ from his ministry context. They were coming to, to take him home. They were coming to make him rest and perhaps make him eat and, and whatever, you know, whatever it is that they were thinking, he's not taking good care of himself. We're going to make sure that he's taken care of, right? And, and again, they did this because they're not seeing the larger significant picture of Jesus, which Jesus reasserts the larger picture by saying, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? All right, we see him speaking to, to the spiritual family that he is making and has made through his life, death, resurrection. Why we call each other brothers and sisters in what? In Christ. Right? Now, this idea of, of seize or lay hold of that we see in the text is carried over by Mark into this parable that Jesus gives about binding the strong man. And this parable is extremely significant because it has eschatological implications. In other words, it has kingdom of God implications for us that we perhaps don't give enough consideration to. And that's where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning. So, so, th so this, this is the context of our passage. Let's get into it a little bit more by examining particularly verses 22 to 28. Look again, uh, just to begin with, at verse 22. It says, and the scribes, okay, the religious leaders here, who came down from Jerusalem, okay, they're kind of religious, pre prestigious hub, if you will, said, he, speaking about Christ as an accusation, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. Okay, so, so we have another conflict here between the religious leaders of the day and Jesus, Okay, but notice they're no longer questioning Jesus. Every interaction that we've seen prior to this point in our text, they're, they're questioning Jesus, even if the questions in and of themselves are kind of um, uh, accusatory, if you will. But they're not coming with questions this time. They're coming with a conclusion. They're coming with a conclusion about Jesus. And, and they've come to a conclusion at this stage in the game because there's no doubt Okay, no doubt whatsoever that Jesus can do miracles. That's not even in question here. It's clear by this stage in Jesus' ministry that he's casting out demons. It's clear at this stage in, the, in Christ's ministry that he's healing those who are sick. It's clear at this stage in Jesus' ministry that he is pronouncing forgiveness of sins. And he's preaching the arrival of the kingdom of God. So the scribes, they come, these religious leaders, they come, and they come with all of their evidence... And just when you think perhaps they would come to one conclusion, they say, he's possessed by the devil. Jesus is possessed by the devil. Now that word, Beelzebub, it harkens back to Baal, who in the Old Testament, you see prophets like Elijah coming into conflict with the priest of Baal in, in, in Elijah's famous God contest in 1 Kings chapter 18. But in using this language, these religious leaders, what they're doing is they're attributing, and this is critical, they're attributing the works of God incarnate to the works of Satan. That's what we see them doing. That is their conclusion. 
Right? That's the conclusion that will eventually lead them to crucify Jesus Christ. And if you're taking notes, one of the things that we need to see that we have kind of examined briefly before is this, and this is included in your takeaways, but faith, not evidence, is the difference between heaven and hell. Okay, faith, not evidence, is the difference between heaven and hell. Again, we've seen this come up in our, <clears throat> in our study already in the gospel of Mark, but we don't need to miss it again. We need to spend time considering it again because it's significant in our text. The, the difference between the disciples of Christ Jesus and these religious leaders was not that one had evidence and the other did not have evidence. It's that one had faith and the other didn't have faith. And this isn't some vague, undefined faith that I'm talking about. It's true evangelical faith. It isn't faith in faith, right? It isn't wishful thinking. It's faith rooted, grounded in Christ Jesus alone as the long-awaited for Messiah who would come and in his coming and his first advent would bring his kingdom with him. Now, faith in Christ, it's not superstitious. It's not superstitious, right? Faith in Christ is seeing what a physician, what a medical doctor like Luke writes down for Theophilus in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter one, verses one through four. I'm going to read it to you just so you can see it. And again, I think we may have it up on the screen. This physician, he says this, uh, seeking to help Theophilus have uh, certainty um, in regards to the identity, the person and the work of Christ Jesus. Luke says, in, in as much as many have undertaken to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those from the beginning who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them, uh, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all the things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed, right? An eyewitness account written during the lives of eyewitnesses who were dying for this very confession, right? I mentioned last week in the selection of the apostles, almost all of them were martyrs, right? The other one was banished to a, an island. They were dying for this very thing, right? This wasn't, this wasn't just something people were signing up to and saying, you know, this is all bogus and we're going to create this this kind of movement here that, that is not real and we're going to die for it. Right? That's, not, that's not what's going on here. But the difference between the religious leaders and the disciples is the difference between seeing this, you see it, and rejecting it, versus seeing it with eyes of faith and confessing Christ as Lord and God. With everything that was available at the first advent, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Right now, now Jesus, he answers the accusation, this accusation of of being possessed by a demon, demon. And and he answers it by using a parable. And the parable again, it's it's significant for us because it has tremendous implications for how we live now. And I want us to spend a good amount of time on this section of the text. Okay? So so look back with me, pick up with me in verse Verse 23, and I'm going to read to verse, 20, verse 27. 
So he called them to himself, okay? Not just the apostles, but the religious leaders who were asserting that he's possessed by a devil, okay? He called them to himself and he said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Okay, so Jesus argues logically with these religious leaders, and in his argumentation, we see a parable that relates to the kingdom of God more than we perhaps perceive at first glance. But first follow the logic of Jesus. Here's the logic. How could Satan cast out Satan? Okay, if Satan were to cast out Satan, his kingdom would not stand. Then he moves on. If a house is divided, the house cannot stand. If Satan were fighting with himself, he would not stand, but has an end. Okay, G- Jesus is saying, why would the enemy, who, who is Satan, do things contrary to his kingdom of darkness? Why would he do things contrary to his kingdom of darkness? Why would Satan heal the sick? Why would Satan cast out demons? Why would Satan pronounce the forgiveness of sins and thus reconciliation to God? Why would Satan love the light and hate darkness? And this is a sound argument, right? This is a sound argument, the way that Christ goes at it. And then in this parable, we see Jesus refer to the strong man, this parable. And the strong man... Again, if we're reading this in its proper context, the strong man is who? It's Satan. Satan. And and certainly this this strong man, even just that short descriptor, it, it kind of harmonizes with how Satan is presented to us in Scripture. Okay, he, he was in his pre-fallen state, Lucifer, okay, the, the first and most powerful and most beautiful of all the created angels, and in his desire to be equal with God. In his pride and arrogance, he fell, and an eternal hell was created for him and for those that followed him, is these, these demons here. And we, we see these things prophesied about Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel 28. We see a mentioning in Luke chapter 10. We, we see Satan called the accuser of the brethren, Revelation chapter 12, right? We see the Apostle Peter, he describes Satan as our adversary and, and one who, like a roaring lion, seeks to devour. Right? First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. Right? We've seen Satan already in our study through the Gospel of Mark. We've seen him as the tempter of Jesus Christ. Right? So, so we get this picture of Satan as we serve, you know, we, we, as we're reading this passage and we're mindful of the ways in which Satan is described in in scripture to us, and, and we can conclude, yeah, rightly, he is a strong man, right? And so he, he's this strong man in this parable that Christ gives, but, but what's important for us to notice in it, and this is where we're going to spend a lot more time fleshing this out, he's not the strong man, okay? He's a strong man, but he's not the strong man, or put, better put, he's not the stronger man. Satan isn't the stronger man, because there's another in this parable that Jesus speaks of that is the binder of the strong man, 
who is Satan. And the one that binds the strong man is also the one that plunders his house, right? He's the one that plunders the strong man's goods. So we have to ask, who is the stronger man? As obvious as this may seem to us, who is the stronger man in this parable? And what are the goods of the strong man's home, of Satan's home, of his household? What are the goods there? And if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Jesus has bound Satan and rescued us from sin's dominion. Jesus has bound Satan and he's rescued us from sin's dominion. Right, this is how we need to interpret this passage in faith. Okay, Now, in, in addition to harmonizing this with other passages of Scripture, I'm going to read us more than I typically do. I'm going to read us some very early church commentary, uh, some of which includes the writings of, of Augustine. Uh, and, I, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But the reason why I want to do that, I want to, I want to uh, bring in other passages of Scripture and then use some early church, um, um, some church father uh, commentary is because I think a, mo- a lot of modern and particularly a lot of American modern commentators, they really get this issue of Satan's binding wrong. Uh, what many Christians tend to think is that we're still waiting for the binding of Satan. And, and while these are wonderful brothers and sisters in Christ, I don't think that that position holds when we consider the grand narrative of redemptive history and when we examine as well our earliest commentators, uh, what it is that they thought about this passage of Scripture. But look with me at verse 27 again, because this is where we see that binding language in this parable. And if you're familiar with parables, you know that Jesus uses them to teach about the nature of his kingdom. And and the purpose of these parables, as we'll see even in the next chapter, uh, when we get to it, is is twofold. Uh, They were to reveal, one one of their purposes was to reveal fixed eternal truths to God's people and also at the same time to conceal the truth from those who were hard-hearted and were wise in their own eyes, namely the, the very religious leaders that he's addressing in this passage of scripture. But look at verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, and again, that's an important word there, first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Okay, so in analyzing this, this parable, we see again, there's a strong man. Okay, the strong man in the parable, he has a home, a domain, if you will. And there's a plunderer. And in order for the plunderer to take the goods from the strong man's house, he must first bind the strong man, which means that he has to be stronger than the strong man. Everybody following me so far? Okay. So that, that, that's just, again, a brief just examination of, of that parable. Now, remember that this parable, if, if we're keeping in mind the ground that we've even already covered in these first few chapters, it's set in the context of Jesus doing miracles, right? He's healing people, right? This is in the context of Jesus exercising demons. This is in the context of Jesus preaching the gospel of God, the kingdom of God. And again, the miraculous works of Christ, they're undeniable already at this early stage. And so the only option of these religious leaders is for them to say in their hard-heartedness that again, Jesus is possessed by a devil or Jesus is himself a devil. Okay? 
the problem with that is that the works that Jesus is doing at this stage in the game, they're contrary to the works of the devil. Okay, they are in opposition to one another, right? Christ in his person and his work, as we've seen time and time again, is pushing back on the darkness, right? We've seen demons falling at the feet of Christ, begging him to leave, leave them alone. What, what do we have to do with you, right? Is, is what some of them are saying to Christ. We're, we're, we're at opposition, we're at odds. We're not in the same camp as one another, Right? Jesus is at war with the kingdom of darkness, and it's not even a competition. It's not even a competition. And this parable underscores that for us. And, it, and it's critical because we as Christians, and you've heard me say this before, we as Christians, we tend to look around at things, and I'm guilty of this too, we tend to look around at things going on in our society, things going on in our culture, and we think, we're tempted to believe that evil triumphs over good. That's not the case. That's not the case. Now, we can look at a passage like today's passage, and we can see what happens when good collides with evil. We see what happens, right? Good wins, but what is good? Who is good? God is good, right? For true good, when true good, when God who is good collides with evil, God wins, right? But our failure to see that and that temptation to despair in our lives, it's nothing new. We're not the first people to wrestle with that. We're not the first people to struggle with that, right? Certainly the disciples despaired when Christ was arrested and flogged and put on this bogus trial, right? And, and then he was condemned to death and he was crucified and died. Yet they despaired. Even though Jesus, I've read the passage a, mo a moment ago when he rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. Christ is very plain spoken, right? The son of man must be delivered. The son of man must die and the son of man will rise again, right? He was pretty plain spoken, so the problem, again, wasn't the evidence. The problem was seeing things with eyes of faith, right? That's, what, that's where the despair begins to set in, right? They weren't seeing the disciples, you know, despairing at the arrest of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. They weren't seeing with spiritual eyes what was happening. They weren't seeing that Christ's crucifixion and death was actually the very fulfillment of this, par this parable that we're looking at this morning, this parable that Christ is speaking about. But listen to what Augustine said, right? And, and for those of you not familiar with Augustine, he lived between the years 354 and 430, right? Pretty early on. He said this about this, this parable. It says, for this purpose, okay, the, the purpose of the parable set forth, Christ came to plunder the strong man's goods, the devil's hold upon the ungodly. The demonic purpose was not just to enter the body or senses as such, but to strike at the innermost volitional center of the self to make it yield to idolatry. Hence, the one guilty of no sin, which is Jesus, loosed the grip of the devil upon sinners who were being held in bondage to sin. And get this, in this way, the devil was conquered precisely at the point at which he seemed to be conquering. Now, Augustine isn't saying 
that Jesus paid this ransom to Satan. There's a, the, a false teaching known as the, the ransom to, to Satan theory. Jesus sacrificed himself to the Father, right, whose holiness is revealed by his law and it's uncompromising. But the transgressors of God's law, you and me, were deceived by Satan Right? And the, 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 the tempter of the first man, the tempter of the first woman in the garden, we were held, thus held, in bondage to sin that was introduced into the world through disobedience. Again, through the tempter, the devil, in the garden. And another early commenta- commentator says it like this, and this is what the, the disciples didn't quite see in the moment. To see how the devil was conquered... <clears throat> Oh, excuse me. For at the moment, the blood of him who had no sin at all was shed for the remission of our sins. The devil deservedly held those whom he had bound by sin to the condition of death. So it happened that one who was guilty of no sin freed them unjustly from this condemnation. The strong man was conquered by this paradoxical justice paradoxical justice and bound by this chain that his vessels, meaning us, his vessels might be taken away. Those vessels, which had been vessels of wrath, were turned to vessels of mercy. When we view this parable in light of the finished work of Jesus, and what I'm saying this morning is that we should view this parable in light of the finished work of Jesus, we see Jesus as the binder of the strong man. Jesus is the plunderer of the goods, and he did this in a particular way. He did this by taking the wrath of God for our sins for us. And when he paid the price for our sins to the Father, sin's dominion over us was broken along with sin's wage, death, and an eternal hell. We were vessels of wrath. We were to be permanent residents in hell, a hell designed for Satan and his angels since the fall of Adam. It would include us if the deceiver, the accuser, Satan, was not bound. In Christ, in his incarnation, in his death, in his descent, and in his glorious bodily resurrection, he paid a payment to God for our sin and that our sin earned, and in doing so, he delivered us from the strong man by binding the strong man, who again is Satan. So this means that we are the goods that have been gloriously plundered. That is good news, isn't it? That's good news. Right? Harmonizing this with another passage, Paul makes this point in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. He, Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he's conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Right? The goods, they've been plundered. We were conveyed. We were transferred from darkness into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, God's beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Now, just as I'm kind of shutting us down here this morning, I want to I make this even clearer for us because as I said, this binding of the strongman, it has kingdom implications for us, it has gospel implications for us. So follow the logic of scripture with me just a moment. All right, Jesus, he, he, he's preached the gospel and he's explicitly said the kingdom of God is at hand. Right? That, that is the foundation of our repentance. Furthermore, we know 
the gospel isn't just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here, right? Right? It's for the whole world. The gospel is for the whole world. Furthermore, we know that the gospel, it goes forth in authority, in Christ's authority into the whole world. And we know as well that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what I want us to see this morning is that all of that, all of it is an impossibility apart from the binding of the strong man. In order for us, the goods, to be delivered or plundered in all of the world, the strong man must be bound. And I believe Jesus did that. He did the binding in his first advent. And the language that Mark uses of binding, it's the same language John uses in Revelation chapter 20. And I, and I want to show us the connection here, and I want to show us how we, we take a passage that can be really difficult to interpret, like Revelation 20, and I'm not saying all of Revelation 20, I'm talking about the first four verses, and we can interpret it with a clearer passage to get a better understanding of what it is that's happening. But look with me just quickly. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, which is Christ, by the way, right? Christ said that he himself holds the keys. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, and he shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations. And remember, the Great Commission is for the nations, it's for the nations. You should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, there's a lot of symbolism in this passage of Scripture, and, and that includes, I think, the, the a thousand years here. I don't think we should interpret the thousand years literally here. But what I want to speak to this passage about for a moment, I want to speak to it because it helps us to frame Mark chapter 3 for us in the significance of Christ's first advent and, and the certainty that the Great Commission will be successful, it will be completed. But here in Revelation chapter 20, we see Satan is called a dragon. He's called the serpent of old, right? Where else do we see that imagery? We see it in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan is called the serpent. We also see in Genesis chapter 3 the prophecy that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, a fatal blow to the serpent, a wound that would hinder his ability to work as he once worked. What else do we see in Revelation 20? Right? We see the one that holds the keys to the bottomless pit, who is Christ, has bound Satan in this binding language we see Jesus uh, speak of in Mark 3 is the same that we see John using here. Now, I would suggest that the binding of Satan and the crushing of the serpent's head is the same act in redemptive history. And while wickedness still pervades in our society. As we look with eyes of faith, we should see that it's also at the same time being gradually sub subdued, like a mustard seed that grows into a large tree. And it's being brought progressively into submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel that goes out in the authority of Christ and accomplishes the will of our triune God as it's being proclaimed. And all of this is possible because Satan's work is limited. 
the binding limits how he deceives. He's still our enemy. He's still the tempter. He's still powerful, but he's bound and limited as it relates to deceiving God's people in the nations and thus as it relates to the gospel of God going forth in power. Augustine says it shorter and better than I just did. The binding of Satan in the day of the Lord's incarnation continues in the, quote, thousand years of the church between the passion of Christ, his first advent, and his coming again to raise the dead and render judgment. During this time, the preaching of the gospel will go into all the world, calling all to mature in the fullness of Christ, the perfect man. Andrew of Caesarea, uh, lived between 563 and 637, says this, Since the devil is bound and restrained, idol worship will be disappearing and pagan temples will ultimately be destroyed. Augustine again, during the time the devil will also, during this time, the thousand years, the devil will also take a deeper hold upon unbelievers, causing them to hate the church from the abyss of their hearts. And we certainly see that in our society God's people, however, although known to God alone, will not be subduced by the devil to the point of damnation, for God has chosen from eternity to rescue them from the power of darkness. Uh, Apringius, 6th century, says, Rather as though bolted down by the cross, the devil is free only to tempt the saints to the extent that the Lord allows. Uh, Caesareus of uh, Arles died uh, 542 says this temptation is not beyond what the saints are able to withstand right he's lifting that from the very words of the apostle Paul in the New Testament and so I, I give you this one to show you an early uh, kind of a church father understanding of these passages and also to to provide us hope as we look at a text like this I, I want us to truly look at our circumstances in our life look at the things going on in our society look at all the bad things going on in our world and I want us to see it with eyes of faith I would love for Deer Park Fellowship to be a church that that processes this stuff with eyes of faith knowing that Jesus was victorious at the cross knowing that Jesus is the binder of the strong man and that he, he has in fact done that very thing and it's because that Christ because Christ alone has done that it's because of that work that you and I even have the capacity to be saved. And so why don't we go together to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you again for time in your word. And God, I just pray that you would grant us grace, Lord, to be optimistic about what you're doing in the nations, God. That though darkness seems to pervade, Lord, when we, there's always so much that you accomplish when it seems that things are falling apart, God. And we have example after example after example of that. So encourage us, strengthen us, Lord. Build us up according to your will. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.